What happens when a CEO, a shrink, and a rabbi start talking about mindfulness at work? Just about anything. Thank you for joining us at Mindful Work. You can learn more about this podcast at www.mindfulwork.show. And now, Mindful Work presents the author and clinical psychologist, Rabbi Dr. Benji Epstein, tea industry executive and award-winning educator, Rabbi Jason Rosen, and your host, Dan Cohen, CEO and founder of Full Court Press Communications. Please enjoy part two of this Mindful Work conversation with authors Michael Dixon and Dr. Naomi Baum, who recently published the book, Is Resilience? with Geffen Publishing. And I thought that was wonderful. I wonder maybe we could switch to uh, 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 an individual that everybody on the call will probably know, which is Chief Rabbi Israel Meyer Lau, mm. who was a childhood Holocaust survivor who became the Chief Rabbi of Israel and, frankly, a moral voice for the world. I wonder, Michael, um, there were a couple things that, that spoke out to me, but I wonder just as, as you think about his resilience and how he how he demonstrated these three pillars of, of empathy, of flexibility, and meaning-making. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about what you learned when you chatted with him. Absolutely. So it was thrilling to sit down with him. He was very generous with, with his time. What struck me most was that in telling his story, and he has documented his story, uh, his autobiography from the depths is a must-read, a harrowing, but must-read. And even so, he must have told his story hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. And yet sitting in front of us in his living room, um, immaculately dressed, black satin frock coat, uh, he still broke down and cried when he told us his story. And it just showed us the depth of, you know, how close that tragedy was to him, you know, even with the distance of time. Uh, he was, of course, an eight-year-old uh, when he was taken from his parents, he became an orphan. Uh, he was sent to Buchenwald, and he talks to us about how he survived Buchenwald. Uh, one of the interesting things that wasn't one of our keys to resilience, but is a very important thing in building resilience, and we saw this in his story, is that of community. And he had his older brother to look out for him, and he speaks about that. Uh, they kept him going, but he also had the kindness. You know, he was a very charismatic young child, and you see it in him now. I mean, you look in his eyes and you see the child in his eyes. Uh, and he uh, was a very charismatic child who was able to win the trust and the friendship of many who looked out for him as well and really kept him going. And when he was chief rabbi, he actually paid tribute uh, to one of the non-Jewish inmates, uh, prisoners, who uh, then looked after him through all of that time. Uh, one other thing I think was particularly uh, noticeable about Chief Rabbi Lau was his sense of humor. And so, yes, we cried alongside him, and yes, we heard deep and, and meaningful tragedy, but at the same time, he exuded positivity and happiness. And that's something we saw in all the people we interviewed. And, you know, we found ourselves laughing in those interviews. And I think that a sense of humor and a sense of positivity was something also that kept them propelling forward. Dr. Baum, what else spoke to you or what did you take from the incredible conversations that you had and the write-ups that you you wrote up with uh, with Rabbi Lau? Um, so, hmm, what else? I think actually Michael Michael captured it very well. Here was this amazing like man with an amazing story, and yet 
you know, he's telling it and he's crying to us and we cried along with him. But um, I, I could just, he was so yeah. graphic in his description. I could picture this little boy. He was actually eight when he arrived on the shores of Israel. He was five wow. when he was separated from his That's parents. Right. That's right. Yeah. And uh, he was, for three years, he was in a concentration camp. And most of that time he wasn't, his brother was sort of hovering in the distance, but he was in a separate block from his, from his yeah. brother. He, it's, I can't, it just blows the mind and you see this guy and, and what he told us about is that um, what, one of the things that kept him going was the knowledge that he was part of a chain. His family had been rabbis for 38 generations and he, it was instilled in him, I guess, when he was four or five. And I think that was something his mother said to him upon parting or close to parting. Never forget that you come from this long chain and we're depending on you to continue this chain of the rabbinate. That was something that really, I think, kept him going. That That he knew that this was something he needed to do. This was his goal in life. This is what gave his life meaning. Um, and, that, and that was remarkable. But the other thing is that when he arrived in Israel, he had an aunt and uncle who uh, had come to Israel before the war. Mm-hmm. And they brought them into, they brought him into their house and adopted him like a son. Um, if you think about that, I, you know, I thought to myself, here, here they are. There's this a couple, not a young couple. They had, I think, one child themselves um, who was already older. And they brought this Holocaust survivor into their house, this eight-year-old or nine-year-old boy by this time. And they just loved him and cared for him and provided him with a very solid home life. Um, they must have been incredible people. Uh, thank you. And, and Michael, I wonder um, what struck me in reading the chapter about Rabbi Lau is also the role of his brother, Naftali, and in how he looked over him um, throughout his life and found meaning in that. And I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about that dynamic and, and about the part um, as, as Rabbi Lau became chief rabbi. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we mentioned that community is so important. We know that in Shifta Yisrael, by the way, if there's ever an exemplar of you know a community that does chesed, it's certainly ours. And, and community is what keeps people going. Community can be one person. Community can be many people. In Rav Lau's case, it was many people, but it was, as you say, specifically his brother. And his brother kept telling him what he had been told, which is, you know, you need to go to the place where they don't kill Jews. Go to the place where they don't kill Jews. And that, for him, was a kind of fantastic notion because the idea that, you know, in the midst of the Holocaust, there was a place on earth that they didn't kill Jews was quite kind of fantastical to him. And yet this is the thing that he and his brother eventually did. They made that pilgrimage. They managed to get over here. And as Naomi said, they were looked after by their family. And he then went on to, you know, rem- he was always told that uh, you're a part of this chain. So he went on to be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv and then on to be the chief rabbi of Israel. And, uh, and, you know, we quote him in a speech that he gave uh, to the the ceremony that happened actually at the beginning of this year uh, in January 2020. It's one of the last things that we wrote in the book uh, when he's speaking to 
the gathered world leaders from all across the world who were remembering uh, the 75th commemoration of the liberation of Auschwitz. And he, uh, he was chosen to speak on behalf of all of the Holocaust survivors uh, at Yad Vashem. And he speaks about that he was told to be part of this unbroken chain. Um, and he speaks about the fact that, you know, he can never forget, uh, but he also can never forgive. It's not his, it's not on, on him to forgive uh, what the events of the Holocaust. Uh, but yet at the same time, he can never forget. And that being so close to him actually was something that kept him going. That's fabulous. Thank you so much. And as we think about meaning making, I also love the part where you described Naftali, his big brother, who had been told by his parents at that camp, um, keep an eye on your brother. And here, (laughs) decades and decades and decades later, the two of them are at the Western Wall as he's about to become the chief rabbi of Israel. And you said that it was like the first time that Naftali could take a breath, like, Okay, we, we made it. We're, we're good. I got you. <laughs> I just thought about the, the challenge that he faced. Yeah, maybe, um, maybe with your indulgence, we could do one more amazing story from the book. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Amit Gofer uh, mm. is an entrepreneur and the inventor of the Rewalk system. And this is the startup nation. We'd be remiss without talking about technology. Um, the Rewalk system helps paraplegics walk after, uh, 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 after they're injured. Um, and I wondered maybe you could just share a little bit about his story and his journey. Uh, maybe Naomi, you could start. Sure. So he he has also each one of these people were so were so remarkable, and his story kind of unfolds as we listen to his story. Um, he starts off by telling how he uh, bought a pair of slacks in the in the canyon one day with his wife, and uh, they put uh, the cheshbonit the receipt in a lottery box. There was some kind of lottery going on there. And his, uh, his receipt was pulled and he won a, an all-terrain vehicle, an ATV. And he said, well, what do I want with this? I don't want this. And his kids were very upset with him. He had teenage kids. They were, what do you mean, dad? You're giving it back? And uh, so to mollify them, he said, okay, we'll take a deal. We'll rent a couple of all-terrain vehicles and we'll take a deal and it'll be fine. But well, they did that, but it wasn't fine at all because what happened is he hit a rock. It was, I guess, a freak accident. And uh, he somersaulted and ended up knocking uh, his head and breaking his spine and becoming not, not only a paraplegic, but a quadriplegic. Wow. So terrible, terrible, terrible accident. He had been very successful in high tech before. He'd gone through the Technion and he'd had, I think, a couple. I think, Michael, correct me if I'm wrong. He had an exit or two before before this happened. He really a very, very gifted um, yeah. uh, engineer. And um, here he was really uh, t- totally paralyzed. Uh, his his life had taken a U-turn and he said it was very, very difficult. He was really in the depths of a depression. Yeah. Surprising at all. Um, and when he talks about what helped him come back to his life, it was really his family and his wife and his friend. He talked about how his friend paved a road for him so he could go on his wheelchair and slowly slowly he's he's one of the people that it took a long time i think he told us maybe two years to kind of 
really come back and start moving and start thinking about things. And, and, and then what he did is he took his disability and turned that into his next project because yeah. he realized that he didn't like sitting in a wheelchair. He didn't like looking at people's belly buttons. He didn't find it. Uh, he didn't like that at all. And and what he he ended up doing is actually developing two different programs. The first one did, turned out didn't work for him, but it was to help paraplegics get up and walk. And the second one was for quadriplegics, and that actually did work for him and pulled him up so that he could eventually meet people at odd level. And you know, it's interesting when you think about that because. We kind of take it for granted that if somebody's in a wheelchair, we're looking down at them and we're looking down at them and they're looking up at us. um, And that's not the way he wanted to live his life. And uh, with his remarkable ingenuity and resilience, that's all you can call it. He he went out and developed these two companies and has brought... um, help to many, many people, very innovative, very interesting, uh, using his experiences to, uh, to remember. But I think the way he talks about how his family was really there for the, him, he, they kind of, I can just picture him telling us that he was in this deep, dark hole and his wife kind of like pulled him up. Yeah. <laughs> the image that I have there. I would just add one quick thing to that, which is that he served in the IDF in the Yom Kippur War, and his superior was Yair Shamir, the son of uh, Yitzhak Shamir. Uh, And the way that they ran their unit was that, you know, it wasn't hierarchical in the sense that you could, uh, there was room for dissent, there was room for ideas. And he speaks about Israeli ingenuity as as that kind of exemplified. And there was a period when he went to go study in the United States. And when he was there, uh, it was Thanksgiving, as it's about to be for all of the South Africans and Brits watching Thanksgiving coming up. Uh, and his son, <laughs> the whole class had drawn pictures of uh, a turkey. turkey. So there was brown turkey, brown turkey, brown turkey. And then his son had this like multicolored kind of funky turkey. Rainbow. Uh, yeah, and he was especially proud of that. That he, And he thinks that shows kind of the Israeli mindset versus perhaps the other Western mindset. Who knows, maybe. Thinking out of the box. He's certainly a person who thinks out of the box. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and he, he, you quoted him as saying, it's up to you whether you have a smile or a frown, mm. so smile. And I yeah. thought for somebody who's been through all the things that he's been through, um, to, to take that outlook, uh, I thought was extraordinary. Um, right. We've got a few minutes left, and I wondered maybe we could take a step back and, and talk about some bigger picture items when it comes to his resilience. Um, the first being that in the West, um, and certainly in America a few years ago, you know, the best-selling books were called Grit or The Blessings of a Skinned Knee about teaching kids that it's okay to fail and learn and pick themselves up again. I wonder, what do you think that Israel has to teach the world or the West about resilience? And, and how, could we, how could we teach the world about that? Uh, uh, Michael, we haven't heard from you. Sure. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so my dream is, first of all, that this book will be everywhere and that people will get to know Israelis via their Israelis resilience. We also have 
uh, an endorsement in the book by Senator Joe Lieberman. We're very honored by that. And he speaks about the fact that, you know, Israel has become is obviously known as the Holy Land. It's become known as the startup nation, but it would be wonderful if Israelis were known for their resilience. So yeah. you began our conversation by saying perhaps we'd coined a phrase and let's hope we have. Um, I think Israelis can teach a lot to the world about our outlook. Um, look, we're not saying that resilience is an exclusively Israeli trait. What we are saying is that Israel is a small country where we all feel everything that goes on. So on the national scale, on the local scale, on the geopolitical and geostrategic scale, we all feel things very closely. Where we, we have this contract, and we speak about this in the book, this contract with the, with the state, if you like, that mm. we're going to send our kids to the army. And there, that, that's what's going to happen. Uh, and so we know that when Israeli young men and women go and serve, unlike perhaps their American or other uh, compatriots, they're actually defending their own families very much. So they may be just miles away from their family. So we feel all these things. We go through these traumas in Israel. We all know, you know, you never know how the day is going to end when it begins. And so these are things that give us all an extra level of stress, perhaps, but also perhaps build our resilience. And so there is much that we can teach. That's why we talk about these keys in his resilience. And also, I think when it comes to, you know, having kids become more resilient and the next generation as well, um, you know, you mentioned those kind of self-help books. Well, perhaps this will be a self-help book for people to understand the Israeli experience. Uh, Naomi's taken resilience building all around the world. Now, it doesn't mean that every other country that she's been to has necessarily been facing the same kind of terror attacks, although some have, and the same kind of experience that we have. But these are techniques that you can learn. So, you know, she has taken them to the U.S. after Hurricane uh, Katrina, for instance. So there are certainly cross uh, uh, skills uh, that people can learn from the Israeli experience. I would add also, I think um, one of the keys that we talk about is meaning making. And that's something that very often in the resilience literature, um, people pay lip service to, but they kind of just say, oh, yeah, you have to have meaning in your life and then put it aside. And I think that one of the things that makes us as Israelis unique is that we feel that meaning every single day in our lives. There's meaning in all, most, I think most of the congreg- your congregation is probably Olim, a good portion of Ranana are Olim. Anybody who's made Aliyah knows that you, every day you're making a choice to stay here. And there's a reason and you remind yourself of what that reason is. And I think that really plays into resilience. We talk about that with our children. It's not, it's not, um, it feels, I think, to all of us who live here that, that we're really living a much truer life. It's, it's a lot less superficial. And I think that that meaning-making is part of it. And I think that that is something that um, certainly uh, Jews who live in other places in the world, whether it be Great Britain or South Africa or the U.S., uh, it would behoove them to to really kind of take that and think about where that plays in their lives and in their families' lives. But it's not only for Jewish people, really, it's for people all over the world. So what Michael says is true, that, that what we're talking about, I, I, and I really have taken this work um, uh, 
far-flung cultures from Nepal to uh, the U.S. to Spain, uh, Haiti, you know, first world countries, developing countries. And, 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 you know, when I first started doing this, I wasn't sure whether what we talk about as resilience building was something that could be translated cross culturally. Mm-hmm. It could be that people in Nepal are different than people in Israel, and they are different. But the very basic emotions are absolutely the same. The importance of flexibility is absolutely the same. And the need to find meaning in life is really the same. And and again, um, Michael mentioned that the kind of wraparound uh, concept that we don't, we haven't actually called a key, but it's so pervasive is that, that social support, whether it be friends, community, family, uh, is something that is very strong in Israel. Um, and um, we know that loneliness, um, and we, we hear about that in the pandemic with social distancing, which is actually really physical distancing. Why yeah. it was called social distancing is a big mystery to me, because what we need to do is we need to be connected socially whether it be by Zoom or by phone call or by sitting in the garden six feet or two meters apart, uh, we need that social contact. We are social animals and social support is so essential um, and a very big part of resilience. Well, your three keys um, that I'm going to keep coming back to, and I would encourage everyone to take away from this conversation around empathy, flexibility, and meaning-making are so important in the COVID discussion. And I wonder Michael, could you add anything more? Um, at the beginning, Dr. Baum, you said this isn't about bouncing back. It's about bouncing forward. And I wonder, Michael, if you could speak to that with relation to COVID. And yeah. before you do, I would just encourage everybody to take a look in the chat box if you're interested in purchasing the book, Is Resilience. Uh, we've uh, attached links on where you can buy it just about anywhere. Um, I'm sorry, Michael. So just your thoughts about bouncing forward in COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So bouncing forward means that you're never the same as you were. You know, you're, you can get back to a good place or you can get forward to a good place, uh, but you're, not ne- you're never at the same place that you went back to. You have experienced something. Look, we're living through this pandemic. Uh, it will always be with us in some way. Let's hope it's not with us in the same strength that it is now, but we will always have endured this. So are there positives we can take from this? Well, we've all, look at what we're doing right now. Who among us had used Zoom? I hadn't uh, before all of this. So I've learned at least one new trick in this time. And I bet I've learned many more. And I bet everybody watching has learned many more as well. We We are learning to adapt and live in a different way. What an incredible thing. So there are... Think different ways to look at this. And I think that was the key thing in all the people we interviewed for the book. They were able to look at the cup half full. The cup is still half empty. We are still going through the pain and the frustration, and it's real, of COVID. And yet at the same time, there is so much, such a, a way to look at the cup half full. We've learned new skills. We're able to adapt in a different way. And therefore, going forward, we will bounce forward to a new and different place. It will never be exactly as we were before the pandemic, but gosh, it could be an incredible new future for all of us. Think on that. Wonderful. Um, So let's just take a moment to pause. If anybody would like to ask a question, go ahead and type it in the chat box rather than open it up on everybody's microphone. Go ahead and look at the chat box. You'll see the links 
on where you can purchase the book on Amazon, Book Depository, Barnes and Noble, um, Walmart, and even here in Israel. If anybody has a question, go ahead and type it in. While we're waiting, Dr. Baum, I wondered if you just wanted to add anything to the discussion around bouncing forward. Maybe something you saw from uh, Natan Sharansky or any of the other people you feature in the book about how they bounced forward in their life. Yeah, interviewing uh, Natan Sharansky was a particular thrill for me. Um, I was very active in the student struggle for Soviet Jewry back in the late 60s and early Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, it was really very exciting for me to meet him. And of course I'd read his book as well. Um, and that was another thing, like we had these two like icons, Rabbi Lau and Natan Sharansky, but hearing them, they're such real people. And Natan Sharansky has a wicked sense of humor. He is really funny, um, and extremely personable. Um, Yeah. Talk about, yeah, like, you know, I it, I can't even think about where to start. You know, his uh, his Sefer Tehillim, he talks a lot about his Sefer Tehillim. He had that Sefer Tehillim, his wife gave it to him, a small, one of those little small Sefer Tehillim, and he had it next to his heart in his chest. And when they took it away and they took it away from him, he went on hunger strikes and they put him in uh, solitary and, uh, you know, he was on and on and on and on. And finally, finally, they're letting him go and they take away all his personal effects. And when he realizes that he's supposed to climb into the airplane and he doesn't have that safer team, he lies down in the snow and makes another demonstration. Uh, what flexibility is that? <laughs> what craziness is that? I don't know, but... But um, that, that, and he got it back. Of course, he got it back. Um, and but he he's an incredibly resilient person because after being in prison uh, for so many years and in solitary for so many years, coming back, making a family life, he had two beautiful children, an amazing career. It, it's, he's just an incredible person. It, it just. Yes. Astounding. <laughs> it really is astounding. Well, thank you. Um, so we do have a question from the team. Um, Adele Hunter asked, how did you choose the people? Michael, maybe you could answer that. Yeah, it was tough. Um, I, I guess one of the things we wanted to do in this book, which is an, you know, I admit it, it's an unadulterated love letter to Israelis. Um, one of the things we wanted to do was tell Israel's story through its people. Uh, in the job that I do with Stand With Us, we are focused on telling Israel's story and pushing back against those who would tell another story about us. And so for me, the most important letter I in the word Israel has never been the one at the beginning. It's the one at the end, Israeli. So for us, it was about telling Israel's story through Israelis. And so what we've done with the 14 people that we selected was that, you know, they, they span ages. There are diversity of backgrounds. Some are Olim, some are not, some are Jewish, some are not. Um, our youngest interviewee is in his 30s, our oldest is in her 90s. But what we wanted to do was tell a different story about Israel in each of those chapters. So you will learn about the Ethiopian community and about Israel in the 70s uh, by hearing the story of 
Shula Muller and her husband. You will uh, understand a little bit more about what it means to serve in the army and certainly in the early years of the state in the story of Avigdor Kahalani. Uh, you understand what it means to be an Israeli Arab and still a passionate Zionist by the story of Yosef Haddad. You'll get background into different um, shades of what it means to be Israeli through the different stories. So that's how we selected them. It definitely wasn't easy. It was a matter of huge discussion. Uh, and uh, who knows, maybe there'll be a sequel. I would just like to add, and I think I want to underscore this since Michael was talking to his own community and he probably doesn't shoot his own horn too much. This book was Michael's idea, <laughs> was his idea. And he asked me to join him on the journey. And I was very happy to do so. Um, it's been a great, it's really been a great journey. We, we interviewed people from north to south, east to west. Um, we, sp- we did spend a lot of time trying to map things out to make sure we had a lot of different areas covered. And we still have plenty of areas that, that are left uncovered. So I, 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 for one, am encouraging Mike that we, uh, Michael, that we write a sequel. Uh, <laughs> well, now that you've said that in front of my rabbi, it's, uh, you know, how can I say no? <laughs> it's got to it's happen now. <laughs> but the idea was really Michael's. He gets full credit and he gets full credit for the title as well. Well, you're getting a glimpse into why it was that I asked Naomi to join me on this journey because she was actually one of my first interviewees for the book. And so uh, elucidating was she on all of these topics um, that I asked her to join me here. She has also written previous books on Kaddish, which I encourage you to read on her own uh, uh, recovery from breast cancer. Uh, so look up Naomi Baum, click on her link on Amazon, and you'll find her other books as well because they are excellent. So I noticed that uh, uh, you, you both the Mutual Admiration Society and, and, I, and I will say that the book was so outstanding that I literally read it in one sitting. Um, I would encourage you. And it was also short. On- well, it's okay, but even folks on the chat have asked for a sequel. Even folks on the chat have asked for a sequel. Um, so, uh, Michael and Dr. Nomi Baum, thank you so much for joining us tonight. This was a fabulous conversation. I have about ten more questions we'd love to ask. Lots of virtual claps from the from the Shift Day community, um, and on behalf of the Shift Day community and um, everybody watching on Facebook, uh, thank you so much, and uh, we wish you just massive, massive success with this book. Thank, Thank you. you very much. And Thank Dan, you'll have to come everywhere with us when we're doing interviews. No problem. <laughs> Happy to do it. Bye, everybody. It Andrew, do you pleasure. want to say anything in goodbye? I will say not not one person left. We uh, we gained viewers as the hour went, as opposed to losing them. So They're huge very credit. resilient. Shifting is very resilient. <laughs> huge credit to you. Andrew, do you want to say anything before we close up? Uh, he's on mute. Thank uh, you, Dan, for hosting and, and to, to Michael and Naomi and for everyone for joining. Have a great Tell evening. your friends to watch it on Facebook if they didn't watch it in real time. Thanks, everybody. Bye. 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 Thank Bye. you. Bye.